Welcome to Grand Rounds Nation on ReachMD, presenting the best Grand Rounds from across the country. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. This week's Grand Rounds comes to us from the University of Arizona College of Medicine and is titled Approaches in Congestive Heart Failure. Here's Dr. Mark Friedman, Clinical Professor of Medicine and Director of the Heart Failure Program at the University of Arizona. I took on this responsibility by default because nobody else in our section wanted to do this. So what I hope to do today, and some of the House staff have really heard this talk already, so it won't hurt them to hear it again, but I wanted to just go through some of the updated recommendations from the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology, and Heart Failure Society concerning management and treatment of heart failure. I have no disclosures. I don't get paid from any of these companies, so I think I'm safe. So... University Medical Center and most of the major medical centers around the country have become very, very interested in heart failure management. And the main reason for that is because it's become a tremendous financial burden to the Medicare system. So it's estimated that there are about 5 million patients in the United States who are diagnosed with heart failure. About a half a million people every year are newly diagnosed uh, with heart failure. Most of the outpatient to office visits in primary care practices involve some element of heart failure and the mortality from heart failure remains tremendous. So the incidence of the problem increases with age, and the patients we're taking care of are increasing in age, so we will see more and more problems with heart failure. And uh, probably the biggest reason why there's been so much interest placed on this in the last couple of years is because heart failure, either as a primary or secondary diagnosis, is the most common Medicare diagnosis-related group in any hospital organization and Medicare spends more dollars on the management of heart failure than any other disease entity and many combined disease entities. And so once the federal government identifies you as being a tremendous cost burden to them, they target you and they try to improve the service provided so that they can reduce their cost. So most of you know that when GRG rules and regulations came out, there was kind of a plan that we were supposed to take really good care of our patients, uh, get them healthy, discharge them, and if the patient got readmitted within 30 days, then you were considered a bad doctor or a bad institution, and uh, they would not pay for the second admission. Uh, The only group in medicine that was excluded from that was heart failure, and the reason for that initially was that the doctor and the hospital had no control over the patient leaving the hospital in good clinical condition, eating a pickle, and running back in the emergency room that night in florid heart failure. And so since that was an uncontrollable variable, they said heart failure can't be included in this 30-day readmission rule, and so people got readmitted. In this hospital, UMC has the highest readmission rate for heart failure in the state. 27% of our patients who are discharged with a diagnosis, either primary or secondary heart failure, are readmitted within 30 days. The average across the country is 24%, so we're not so awful compared to the rest of the country, uh, but we're not as good as some other institutions. The main reason for that is uh, most of the house staff know that the case managers bother you every morning to get people discharged. So they come by and they say, Mr. Smith has been here for two and a half days. He's basically at the end of his DRG uh, expected length of stay. He looks terrific. I think you ought to discharge him today. And if you do, and the patient's really well, that's fine. But if the patient's not yet ready to go and you discharge them, they will be back. The outpatient management of this after a hospital discharge is another area that needs a lot of work and attention, and we don't do a very good job of that outpatient care. So dollars are really what's driving uh, the impetus for trying to improve heart failure care. 
So the American College, American Heart Association, and the Heart Failure Society knew that most of us have been trained in specific ways of dealing with this very complex problem, but we were not doing a very good job of dealing with the issue, and people were being readmitted to the hospital over and over again with heart failure, and they said, we need to do something to prevent the problem from occurring, because once the problem occurs, even though we know ways of treating it, we don't do a very, very good job of keeping these people okay. So the guidelines that were updated recently were basically related to diagnosis and management of the patient with chronic heart failure in the adult, and that's really important because actually there are no guidelines and no real recommendations for the acute management of the decompensated patient admitted to the hospital. So we have a lot of studies that have been done over the course of years that tell us, in general, what works in the heart failure patient population in an outpatient setting for chronic therapy. We have very little data and studies that have been done on what's the appropriate management for the acutely decompensated patient. And I think you'll see, if I can get through some of this in time, that even though we think that there are good studies to tell us what to do for these chronically ill patients, there aren't a whole lot of data to support any of the recommendations here. So we know that heart failure is a pretty complex uh, problem. Uh, there's no one specific etiology for this. There are multiple different cardiac abnormalities that can result in heart failure. Heart failure is like kind of end-stage kidney disease. You start out with some disease, and it gets to a point where the heart can't work, and the heart fails, and whatever the the beginning etiology uh, may not be able to be identified uh, once the patient is kind of in stage in their heart failure progress. So in the past, heart failure was defined as some cardiac problem, and it was usually associated with volume overload. And so the term congestive heart failure was used, and that term has been kind of done away with. The reason for that is we now know that not every heart failure patient is volume overloaded uh, when they present with symptoms. Some of them will present just with fatigue. Some of them will present with just low blood pressure, low cardiac output states, and they may not be volume overloaded. We also used to think that all these people had serious compromise of their left ventricular systolic function. We now know that that's probably not the case. Probably more than 50% of the people we see with heart failure really have preserved left ventricular systolic function, and they have predominant diastolic abnormalities referred to as either diastolic heart failure or heart failure with preserved systolic function. As we go through this, you'll see uh, that even though there are some data to support how to treat the bad systolic ventricle, there actually are no data to tell us how to treat the patient with preserved systolic function and diastolic heart failure. So this uh, is a new concept, and I think it's important we talk about it for a little bit, because this is what the medical students are being taught now concerning classification of heart failure. We grew up with the New York Heart Association classification of heart failure, where patients' symptoms uh, defined how they were classified, class one being patients who were not symptomatic, class four being patients who were symptomatic at rest, and two being patients who were symptomatic with more than normal activity, and class three patients were uh, symptomatic with less than normal physical activity. But again, because the emphasis now is trying to not wait till the patient develops heart failure, but to try to identify the patient who might develop heart failure, patient in the early stages of a disease process that might ultimately result in heart failure, trying to identify those people and then treat them before they ever develop heart failure is where the main emphasis of the new guidelines went. And so they came up with a different classification that starts before the New York Heart Association classification because New York Heart Association classification doesn't begin until you get to what's now referred to as stage C heart failure. So the, the Heart Association said 
We need to identify people who have risk factors, who might, if not treated appropriately, will develop enough disease to result in heart failure, so they need to identify the patient with hypertension, diabetes, or any other significant risk factor that might ultimately result in some cardiac abnormality that left untreated or poorly treated would result in the patient developing heart failure. So basically what they're saying is there's really an emphasis at the primary care level to identify these people and get them treated aggressively early so that they don't need to come see me later. If you don't find the patient before they have any evidence of a structural abnormality of their heart, so their hypertension has been longstanding, they already develop some evidence of left ventricular hypertrophy, or they have some asymptomatic vascular disease uh, noted from their diabetes evaluation, they now move into stage B, where they have some structural abnormality of the heart. The heart has compensated. Uh, there's no clinical evidence of heart failure. Again, the thought is that if people are identified either at stage A or stage B and are aggressively treated for these factors, that you can prevent them from moving on to stage C, which is where the patient becomes symptomatic. And symptomatic heart failure in the setting of structural heart disease is where the New York Heart Association classification begins, class one to four being dependent on the patient's symptoms. Once they get to stage C, then the standard heart failure therapy that we're going to talk about begins to play an important role. And if that is ineffective or the patient gets picked up too late, they wind up in stage D, which is basically end-stage heart failure. These are the people that we see in the hospital who are referred for transplants or for device therapy. So just to go over it again, stage A, high-risk patients with risk factors for developing heart failure. Stage B are patients who have some element of structural disease, currently asymptomatic with no clinical evidence of heart failure. And the heart failure diagnosis classification, New York Heart Association classification, starts with C, where they either have had previous evidence of heart failure or current symptoms, and stage D being end stage. The emphasis, again, is to prevent the problem from occurring, trying not to have to treat it. And it's important to recognize that the stages from A through D are not reversible. You cannot go from stage B back to A even though you're treated. Once there's a structural abnormality, the structural abnormality is going to be almost a permanent problem. Some evidence that you might be able to reverse LVH with some aggressive therapy for hypertension, but the thought is that once there's some real significant structural abnormality of the heart and the heart has to compensate in some way, that that's not a reversible process. And so the disease is progressive. If it's not identified early and treated early and you prevent symptoms of heart failure, the patient is going to get progressively worse. So again, the new classification, staging, and then New York Heart class is supposed to complement and doesn't replace the Heart Association classification, but the New York Heart Association class does not start until the patient's sick. So we have several classes of drugs which have been studied and proven to be a benefit in heart failure. One of the classes that's used most often are ACE inhibitors. These uh, drugs are predominantly used for treatment of hypertension. You have a whole bunch of ACE inhibitors that have been studied in this population of people. They're all effective. They're all recommended for the treatment of hypertension. Then you have some of the drugs that have been studied in a structural heart disease patient population, post-MI specifically, where there's been some anatomic change in the heart, but yet the heart's still functional, and the heart patient does not develop clinical heart failure. And there are several of these ACE inhibitors that have been studied in that population and shown to be effective. And then there are a list of agents that have been actually studied in the heart failure patient population and shown to be effective. 
Now, what's the definition of effective in heart failure medical management? You have to prove that the drug improves survival. So even though it may make the patient feel better, even though it may actually do some good, if the drug did not show improved survival, it will not get an approval from the FDA for management of heart failure. So pretty standard therapy. We try to put people on ACE inhibitors as part of their chronic therapy all the time. There are some people, as you know, who don't tolerate ACE inhibitors. They develop some adverse effect, usually uh, annoying non-productive cough. And so angiotensin receptor blockers are the second-line drugs uh, that have similar hemodynamic effects as the ACE inhibitors. There are two of the ARBs that have been tested in the heart failure population and shown to improve survival. So when we pick any one of these agents and say they're all equal, it may be that they're all equal, but the FDA doesn't say that. The FDA says if you're going to treat heart failure with these drugs, you have two choices. Beta blockers. We have used beta blockers for many, many years. Uh, hypertension therapy with beta blockers is often effective in some patient populations. A whole bunch of beta blockers that have been approved for treatment of hypertension and would be effective in the stage A group of people not yet with structural heart disease. There are a number of beta blockers that have been tested in the post-MI patient population and shown to be of significant benefit improving survival post-MI. And then in the heart failure patient population, you basically have three beta blockers that have been tested in this population, and one of them is not available in the United States. So the two that are, Coreg and long-acting metoprolol or Topol XL, are the only two beta blockers that have been tested and shown to improve survival in the heart failure patient population. So we do not know whether or not it's appropriate to use a cheap, generic form of any of these drugs, or whether we need to go with the more standard therapy that's been tested and approved, but at least currently the thought would be that these drugs are at least have been shown to be effective and probably should be the beta blockers that we're using in the symptomatic heart failure patient. Dr. Marcus is here, so we have to talk about digoxin. And since Dr. Goldman's not here, we can't talk about digoxin. But digoxin has been shown to have a hemodynamic effect that's positive and is accepted as appropriate therapy for the symptomatic heart failure patient. Digoxin has not been shown to improve survival in most patient groups, but it was approved before there was a requirement to show that you had to improve survival. So currently, digoxin probably would not get a heart failure approval, but it's been grandfathered, and so we use it. There's definite hemodynamic data that it has a positive effect. So I can't let Dr. Goldman tell you that it's a worthless drug. It is not a worthless drug. It's an effective drug. We'll return for more from this session of Grand Rounds Nation after a short break. <laughs> 